this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. Okay, everybody, I'm popping in here because I kind of made a promise that I might have a little something special for you today. Merry Christmas. And, uh, What I'm going to leave here is going to be five episodes. These are episodes that I originally recorded back in about January. And this was when the show was something very different, when I was still doing this under further questions. And I thought maybe I was going to do a show about the paranormal. And I had on five friends. And these are five episodes. They haven't been living anywhere since then. So I decided, what better day than today? to drop these into your feed. So if something sounds a little out of date and we talk about things before COVID, well, that's because this was before COVID. So enjoy the episodes. Remember what the world was like back then, about a year ago. And uh, I'll talk to you tomorrow when I come back with a new episode. Just finished watching episode seven of In the Trail of UFOs. Crap, I should have sent you eight. I forgot I only sent you through seven. Everything you guys do, it's like, I, I see where, you, where you've gone and I'm like, wow, that was such great production quality. And the next one comes out and it's like, not just a movement forward, you guys always seem to leap forward. And I thought that this one was just by far the best thing that you've done. Oh, wow. Thank you. It's fantastic. and I mean, it's such depth too, you know, like maybe that has something to do with it as well. Being able to go eight episodes... Yeah, there's a lot more planned for this too. Yeah, it's an ongoing thing, right? It's going to continue going. Everything's changed. I mean, we can talk about this on the show, but everything's kind of changed as far as like how it's ongoing. It's it's kind of altered because originally it was going to be like each season, quote unquote season was going to be a different topic. Now we're basically like launching multiple ongoings at once. So on the trail of UFO season two is going to come out uh, probably next year and on the trail of Bigfoot season two is going to come out next year. And then we're also going to do an on the trail of the Lake Michigan Mothman special. And then there's probably going to be on the trail of haunts or hauntings coming out um, fairly soon too. So we just have to, there's a lot of like production things we have to figure out as far as doing all that. Cause I can't, I obviously can't shoot all of that, Um, but we have people that are involved that we could, we'll figure it out. Something along the lines of what you did with On the Trail of Champ? Um, 
Yeah, to an extent. The problem with Champ was that I had no involvement in it at all. So it's just like after everything was done already, basically. Yeah, and I kind of tried to help steer things. And Alexander did an amazing job because obviously he kind of like set the stage for what we would do going forward. But um, I, I also, when I watched that one, I feel like it, there's something about it. It doesn't feel like an SDM production. And it could also just be that his budget was non-existent and he was trying to do everything by himself. So I just want to be more involved in the post-production side of of anything else that I'm not there to shoot. For sure, I'm involved. I'm basically going to do everything for On the Trail of Bigfoot again. So I'm planning on shooting, narrating, being in it, all that stuff. And then uh, UFOs and uh, the hauntings thing will probably... I'll be involved, but I'm not sure yet to what extent. Well, I can imagine the reason the Bigfoot one was because Bigfoot, as far as topics, as far as I can tell, is your baby. Like, that's your big topic. Yeah. Are we recording? Yeah. Sorry. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure because I was going to, uh, yeah, we, I don't know. I don't know when this episode is dropping, but we're going to drop the announcement pretty soon. But yeah, the, it's definitely the subject I can't get away from. So I keep coming back to it. And, um, uh, we're in the process of like planning how to do it because UFOs and Bigfoot are really different. Like UFOs, we could do a dozen seasons just like season one, like structure wise, and you wouldn't run out of things to talk about. With Bigfoot, you're going to run out of stuff pretty quick. Like I actually feel like we sort of said everything we needed to say about the history of the entire phenomenon in the in the first season. So what what does like a season two and a three and four or whatever look like? And so um, I've kind of narrowed that down to being more um, localized. So each episode is going to be sort of in a specific region. Um, so we're in the process of planning the first couple episodes of season two. And it, it looks like um, we're doing one of two things. I'm not, I, these are being locked down but the first it's i know it's going to be a two or three parter that starts it off um and it's either going to be alaska or uh, a trip up the bc coast on a boat which we're talking to some people about doing so we really want to get out into like areas that are sort of the, the original bigfoot habitat and then and then sort of come back to our roots so i'm sure there'll be some i'm not yet positive what the states are going to be that we are involved in in season two but i know i want to hit west virginia um because we for whatever reason we haven't done anything with with west virginia in any of the on the trail of stuff yet um so i want to get to west virginia and um there's a researcher or investigator there named les odell and uh i think him and i are just going to go out for like a few days in some active areas and um see if anything happens and then also you know like i'll be it won't the show won't become just me like with night vision running around in the woods <laughs> we have plenty of that <laughs> yeah it'll, it'll still be the the stuff that sort of sets us apart from that kind of stuff but um i do want to get more investigative in general with on the trail of moving forward i mean on the trail is the lake michigan mothman that that project's going to be very uh very much like a look at in investigation like like you like paranormal investigation because i just don't feel like we've done that yet something more akin to like a hellier um 
I haven't seen Hellier, but I oh, I would I would say it's um you know like what I always go back to are the shows that I love are like the the seventies and and some of the early eighties docs. Um, there's one that was about uh, Robert W. Morgan looking for for Bigfoot at Mount St. Helens, and it's been it's weird because it's been reworked into like multiple titles so every now and then i see footage from it popping up in some other doc from like the 70s or 80s i never heard of so that's kind of weird but it was actually called on the trail of or in search of bigfoot but it wasn't part of in search of it was just called in search of bigfoot and it was like this 80 minute long doc about robert w morgan and his crew looking for bigfoot near mount st helens and um, they end up getting driven away by forest fires and it's really interesting because nothing happens like they're right. the entire doc is them like running around looking for Bigfoot and not finding anything, but there's something so honest about it. And I've always loved that. And so I want to see that kind of like approach to, to a paranormal investigation. And it's more about like, like Tobias and Emily Wayland are going to be our, our central figures in that in on the, on the trail of Lake Michigan Mothman. And they're going to talk to witnesses and, you know, other investigators and stuff like that. So typical SDM, but more investigative, I think. I feel like there's this new wave of, in a way, like you said, going back to old wave of, uh, I'm hesitant to always use the word paranormal because I feel like there's kind of, when I say the word paranormal, people usually just automatically go to ghosts. Sure. the unreal is a word that I'll use. Um, but, you know, just dealing with this kind of stuff lately in the last, I'd say everything after Unsolved Mysteries until recently, everything has been sensationalized. And not that Unsolved Mysteries wasn't, but it was also the first time that this stuff was really mainstream other than in search of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm obsessed with Unsolved Mysteries too. Oh, me too. You know, I've gone through the Prime, gone yeah. through every episode on Prime about 12 times. Yeah, me too. Like, well, we can probably have conversations about episodes. <laughs> yeah, I, my favorite. My I can tell you, my favorite recreation is the uh, the um, Hudson Valley Triangle episode. Oh where yeah, they get, where, where they get into the Black Triangles, and that was like one of the thrills for me about making on the trail of UFOs, getting to do Hudson Valley. But you know, after the fact, I was like, man, that was that was fun, and we did a good job, and like Santino didn't, you know, some nice effects for our Hudson Valley thing, but um. It was no unsolved mystery. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always go back to my first thing when I think of it is Matthew McConaughey when he's, uh, I can't remember the name of the guy right now, but uh, Gene Bell is the guy that kills him. And he's in at one episode, give me your keys. I'm like, oh, yes, you learned how to act later. <laughs> yeah. But that was the beauty of weird, it, too. It is. And there's a weird. Um, timelessness to those episodes. There's still, see, there's there was something really unsettling about that show because I can remember as a kid being at my grandma's house because my my family didn't have TV, like my, my grandparents had cable, and I'd be over there and I would I would leave the room if if that show was on. Even the theme song freaked me out. Oh yeah, as a kid, and um, there's something still that holds up about it. Like some of those recreations are really unsettling there's the one about the girl who tried to tell everyone that she was being like stalked and threatened and no one believed her and oh, the one that she, they found in the ditch yeah yeah they end up finding her well i think she was 
She was, was tied she? with her hands behind her back. Yes, right? that's it. Yeah. No one. But then they tried her. to say it was suicide. Yeah, they claimed it was suicide. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, yeah, we just, everybody. Just, welcome to nerding out yeah. on unsolved mysteries. <laughs> I was gonna say we should just change this into a an unsolved mysteries. I could seriously so. talk about this for days. Like, yeah, I know. It's, no it's, joke. It's really good, and it's funny because um, um, I heard that the whoever owns the rights to Cosgrove Media. Okay, so I heard that that there's like a a couple, there's there's two men or something that are like at the at sort of the center of all that, and they supposedly really do not l- like the paranormal episodes. And so I had heard um, someone I know in Hollywood was actually trying to get the rights to make the show, but they were pitching it very heavily as like a not a paranormal show, but but there would be a much more of a focus on the paranormal. And I guess that was like a huge turnoff for, for what did you say, Cosgrove? Cosgrove, I'm not sure if they still Cosgrove. own the rights to it. They did. Okay. Um, but then I can't, I'm totally blanking on the name of the people who finally got it. Yeah. Onto um, Netflix or whatever. Film Rise. Oh, Film Rise. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. But someone, didn't they just announce that someone's like doing new episodes? I thought we had, I thought someone had announced that recently. I hope so. I mean, there was that re that that revival briefly in the early two thousands with Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, I don't Um, think I saw that. I saw the Dennis Farina. Yeah, that was terrible. (laughs) It was like the they cut everything in like a quarter of the of the you know they cut out as much of the reenactment as possible. Right. They lost all the charm. Farina is awesome, but yeah, yeah, that was was the only thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I started those those hit. Prime first, so I started going through those, and I was like, "Oh, this is unsatisfying, painful." Yeah. So, did you? Um, sorry, you're you're like I've only talked to maybe like two people, and I've you might be the first person I've talked to where you've watched the whole almost the entire on the trail of. So, what did you? Can you give me like give me what you? Well, first of all, the first note that I have that goes along with what we're saying right here mm-hmm. is the reenactments in episode one totally gave me the unsolved mysteries vibe. Oh, cool! Yeah. And yeah. I'm using reenactments with air quotes because it's not really, there's not people reenacting. Right. The special yeah. effects. You know, yeah, the, this one we were, we were bridging. I mean, it's very different from on the trail of Bigfoot because on the trail of Bigfoot, I mean, there's some, some like supposedly spooky footage or something whenever someone's telling a story, but it's, it, I wanted to stay away from recreations with Bigfoot and I probably will even more so with season two. Um, but with this one, I almost wanted to bridge the gap between like our movies and on the trail of, and still keep it, you know, don't put like actors in it, uh, or even or even like full blown animation like what we do with the movies, but like do do something that was like a POV kind of perspective thing. So good, I'm glad Santino did most of the the effect shots for the recreations. There's a few there's a few different ways we did the recreations. There was Santino doing like the animation in that one, especially when Dan Weiss is telling his story and it cuts to like the, the, uh, the candy ship is what Santino calls it, um, <laughs> in the sky. Uh, that was, that was all Santino, um, which is like a blend of CG. I think it, it actually is just CG on, you know, real, real shots and then he makes it look cool. Um, and then there's, there's actually just some lights. Like I did a lot of shots of, you know, cause eventually you're, this is the most expensive thing we've ever done. 
Right. And, and yeah. And at a certain point money ran out and I, and I was shooting like these, I bought these little lights on, this is some real inside baseball stuff that no one's going to care about. Um, I bought these lights on like Amazon and then I would take them in my office and turn off all the lights and film them on the ground doing different things. <laughs> and then I, would uh, put those over, like I, I usually like sort of comp them into other shots to make it look like a light in the sky or whatever. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but I think it does a, a decent job. It has a very like 1980s effect to it. And then weirdly enough, I actually did some of the effects shots myself as well. I think, well, hands down, I would say one of my other notes that I had coming in was best special effects I've seen in anything like this. Really? They just felt genuine. Oh, wow. And felt like you guys were trying to push it too far, mm-hmm. but it also didn't have a cheesy vibe to it at all. It was just exactly where it needed to be. Yeah, episode six is... Um, there's like 40 effect shots in that one episode alone. And Santino did... Santino did like... 12 i think and then i did close to 20 that's the ghost lights episode right yeah that's the spook lights yeah and then i did a bunch on episode i did two of the recreations on episode seven there's only one in the entire series that i will proudly like say hey i did that one and that's (laughs) when um that's the gary tribert abduction story where he's talking about how he was a kid and walked up this hill and saw a ufo over a gravel pit Um, I did that one myself and made it look like it's like eight millimeter or something. I I like the way that one turned out. Yeah. I mean, like there's also something to be said about how you, there's a cohesiveness to all the episodes, but there's also an individuality to the style of each episode. Oh yeah. This is awesome. Thank you. (laughs) Just that. These are, these are the things I never get to hear from, from anyone. (laughs) Like, like especially this early in the game, because you're you're one of like maybe eight people who see the whole thing. I noticed I was going through and looking at the underneath on the YouTube, and I was like, it was like zero views. I'm like, am I really like other than the staff, the first person to see this? Yeah, it's like it's mostly us and my son and uh, my two year old son, and uh, and then I send it to, to some friends. I don't know how many views we've had on them. I gotta watch that stuff because sometimes those links get away from us and people will share stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when we made on the trail of Bigfoot, someone that was in the final episode decided it would be cool to just share it on his Facebook page, even though it was oh. two months away from coming out. And I went to bed and when I woke up, there were 300 views on it. And I was like, oh, you no. have to be kidding me. It wasn't even a finished cut. Um, so now I'm like real paranoid about it. Check on episode three then, because you have like forty views on that one. That's fine. That like that's that's within the realm of possibility because a lot of times that's me or you know like that's <laughs> just checking I'll, it I'll, over. Yeah, I go I back the same through thing. and rewatch everything <laughs> and double check and triple check everything, quadruple check. But yeah, the the um the effects stuff on 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 this one is is pretty impressive. Given, I mean, even though it's the most expensive thing we've we've done, I think. Episode six alone probably has more effect shots in it than most of our films. Like most of our 90, you know, not 90, most of our like 60 to 70 minute movies. So, and that's a 27 minute episode. Yeah, there's, in the first one, there's that Unsolved Mysteries vibe, but there's also like a very uh, Casey Neistat vibe to it as well. Oh, cool. I do that. I, that's, that's who I watch. Um, Casey, uh, Peter McKinnon, mm-hmm. um, this guy Levi Allen, who who does a 
a YouTube channel called Left Coast, who I actually... Oh, I know that guy too. Yeah, I'm going to try to reach out to him because I really want to see if I can get him to DP something. Like maybe... maybe I, I told my wife this the other day and she's like, you're insane. But I, I want to reach out to him <laughs> and see if I can get him to like be, be cinematographer on like a season of On the Trail of Bigfoot. He's doing think, Squarespace commercials now. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. Hi, friends. Yeah. That's how he started all of his videos. Yeah, he does. Hi, friends. He's, seems so nice. I know. Um, it's the Canadian thing. Mm-hmm. And he lived in that van for a while. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, that was cool. Recently, he started talking about that. And because uh, my wife is really hard on van life people. And uh, so when that happened, she, she thought it was comical. And then I, he did a, a video recently and explained that that was because, um, that was just simply because of like necessity, because of the way that their jobs worked and everything. So I was like, oh, that's cool. Like if I was younger and didn't have a kid, I'd probably live in a van. Mostly because I'd be, probably be you know, poor or something. <laughs> My it's not that option. different than these tiny house people either, is it really? Yeah. No. But yeah I'm obsessed that's, with tiny houses. So <laughs> My mom is. I bought her like three of those books. Boy, I'm really uh, rambling about nonsense here. But yeah, That's they, exactly what I want. <laughs> I want you to relax and have fun. The nice stat, and that's cool that you you said that. I mean, I I tried to to do my own thing with that style because, like, the, my only other experience editing that way was uh, Bray Road Beast, and um, with Bray Road, I was watching a lot of Fincher, so like that was I was I mean I I was into Left Coast and all that stuff at the time, but I think I was watching more of like Fight Club and stuff like that to try to figure out the rhythm of, of that kind of editing because it's really not my it, first of all, it's not really my thing. It's not my favorite way to tell a story. And then the other thing is that it, it is time consuming to an insane degree. I, I know I've done video editing, so I completely understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that, that is extremely time consuming. And, you know, the idea of on the trail of originally was that it would be kind of like a side project. And, um, this took, uh, I started editing this at the end of October. And I just wrapped what like two weeks ago, um, or a week ago, maybe it's not a, maybe it isn't even full two weeks. So I mean, it was basically like um, three, basically three months of editing, which is a lot of editing for us. We don't, you know, usually a movie is like six to eight weeks where we're in and out of an edit, and um, so this was like a, a very extended edit for me. And there were days, you know, where I was here at the office from like. 7 a.m. till 11 p.m. stuff like that, and it, it a lot of it was because of that style. Like, um, and I brought on an editor assistant at one point who was a buddy of mine who did a lot of videography and editing, and he used to work for like a church and did their their like services or you know like we put them online and stuff, and was good with editing. And I gave it to him, and I was like, I basically gave him. I'd never done this before, but I thought it would work. I gave him a cut that was basically like a cut of on the trail of Bigfoot. So it was, you know, like six, seven minute edits or seven second edits and, um, and stuff like that. And I was like, here's, here's the final cut. Like this is the story's in place. I basically just need you to go through and do the, the like stylized stuff. Just, you know, they, I think he called it sweetening, like sweetening the edit. And, um, after like the first week he gave it back to me, I was like, dude, this is, I, I don't know how to do this. This is insane. <laughs> and I would, I would, try to, I, I would try to explain it. To, I'd be like, well, like someone will say like, um, we'll mention offhandedly, uh, like, a 
an ambulance seeing a UFO. You would smash cut into like an ambulance, into like a close up, like three close ups of some, <laughs> some like ambulance lights spinning, jump out, show a quick cut of a UFO, jump back in. And I realized like in explaining it that way, I, first of all, I don't really know what I'm doing. So I'm trying to explain it to someone else who doesn't know what they're doing. And in the end, it just made more sense for me to just go back to doing it myself, which is why we ended up in a situation where I was here every night till like 11 p.m. There's there's a certain like almost like comedic timing to it. Even though you're not really... Your effect isn't really comedy. It really is like punchline, punchline. And and there are 100% times where I screw it up. Like I, th- I think anyone who actually knows editing when they're watching this will pick it up like when it, when it works and when it doesn't work. Um, and a lot of the times if it didn't work, it was just, I was to a point where I was like, I had to finish this and be done because I, I have other <laughs> stuff to do. So I, um, I did watch a lot of Casey though and, and Peter McKinnon and, and the left coast to kind of pick up on all that stuff. And, and I think that helps. And I, I'm, I like editing like, like this. It's just very time consuming. My, my preferred style is on the trail of Bigfoot where you're, your typical cut is like six six seconds long. You know, like your B-roll is just sort of taking in the landscapes. But this is different too. Like it's not it's not supposed to be like that. This wasn't... On the Trail of Bigfoot, it's supposed to be very much a travelogue. And On the Trail of UFOs is sort of like a travelogue, but it's mashed up with like an investigation into a phenomenon. Right. So it's, it's a little different. And, and also I just wanted it to feel more immediate and of the of the moment and i just didn't think that my traditional sort of editing style would would bring that and also just to keep things interesting we're, if we're doing three or four projects a year it gets really boring if i'm just coming into work you know every okay cuttering it yeah and just doing the same thing over and over and that's like why um i think you mentioned already like the 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 well, you were talking about the style of the episodes themselves, but I think I try to do, we try to do every movie differently too. Like, totally, you know, because otherwise it really does get kind of boring. Like you just feel like you're doing the same stuff. Biggest example of that is Momo. Yeah. I mean, that one's out of everything. Momo is completely different than everything. Yeah. And, um, and that whole thing was like a huge learning curve for all of us. Like everyone involved it's it's um i said recently that ufos is like probably my favorite shoots like just the shoots themselves are probably some of my favorite shoots but momo is like by far the most creatively fulfilling thing that that i've worked on it was also we got to a point where i was like i don't think this is going to be a success (laughs) and i and then i also got to a point where I was like, I don't really care. So like, and I mean, it sucks because to be though. it is. And it, it wasn't like, it was a bomb. It didn't do anything. And, oh, and really? yeah, I mean, it was a huge bomb and it, and it, it's audiences, you know, split as far as like who people either hate it or love it. And, um, and that sucks for a lot of us. Cause you really do like the crew puts so much effort and heart into everything we do which i think is very obvious yeah thank you and and like there's times where like when when something bombs like that we've had off the top of my head we've had three bombs but boggy creek was kind of a bomb people don't really know that 
Um, but the Boggy Creek Monster movie was kind of a kind of tanked. That's interesting because um, those two mirror each other. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it, what's interesting about that is because of that, I was convinced that like on the trail of Bigfoot was going to be a bomb because Invasion on Chestnut Ridge found an audience on Prime, but on like when it was for sale or whatever, it didn't make anything. And um, same with Boggy and Beast of Whitehall and Minerva were too early in the game for really <clears throat> for me to tell if they were going to be if they were successful based on our current way of doing things like yeah they were they were great because they picked up local press and they sold dvds or whatever but i don't know if today we put those out if they would be considered a success but um yeah i was convinced on the trail of bigfoot was going to be this huge not a huge well we were never concerned about it being a flop because it cost basically it cost three grand to make and then there was another additional bit of money that went into like the poster artist and stuff like that um so we didn't think it would lose money but i didn't think it would make that much and um and then it came out and now it's like the biggest thing we've ever done um such a trip yeah and i'm really glad about that too because that that style of filmmaking is what i really like i i like just picking up my camera and going and doing something it's i love making the movies like at Mothman and Terror in the Skies and that kind of stuff. But we put so much time and effort into making sure everything looks really good that it kind of drains the fun out of it in a way for me. Yeah. And, um, I can feel that. Yeah. And like interview setups. Yeah. Interview setups and all that get really exhausting. And I'm, I already really stress with interviews. Um, it's, it's like the most stressful part of filmmaking for me is doing interviews, which is interesting because we shot 29 for on the trailer. <laughs> um, but I, I'll get so stressed out going into it. And then when you're also spending like, I'm not kidding, like a, a, an interview setup can take two hours oh, and, yeah. um, on a movie. And for us, that's like that entire time I'm like freaking out. Like, is this going <laughs> to, this going to look terrible? Like, and, um, and then you put it, and what's funny is you'll put it out and like, no matter how good it looks, you'll still get some person like just leaving an offhanded comment somewhere. Like, why do you shoot this? Why, why is the one <laughs> camera pointed up her nose? And like, you know, like we didn't spend hours trying to figure out how to do it. Right. So. And that's, it's funny to me because most document documentaries of this style mm-hmm. or these topics are shitty. And you, you guys are like f- far and above everything else, pretty much in the industry. Mm, you know you. what I mean? Like you go onto Amazon Prime and you watch anything else on Bigfoot other than, you know, like the high budget TV shows where they're kind of scripting everything. Mm. But you go to like normal documentaries and it's like, I mean, granted, these people are making it on like no money, but mm. there's no comparison in production. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that stuff has to do with the fact that um, I hate everything I do. So, like, <laughs> So like you pick it apart. It's funny because I've watched. It was one of those guys we were talking about. It was like Casey or Peter or, or Levi talking about how they can't. They watch back over it, and all they see are the faults. And so when when you only see the faults, you're you're always trying to improve, right? And um, so there's like a weird masochism involved in in like the way in the way we shoot and you know or make movies, and it's because like I'll. Every single 
thing we do, I pick apart myself. So by the time Momo came out and all of these critics or whatever, you know, we're, we're going off on it. Um, I had already sort of seen a lot of the things that, that people could pick at, you know, so it didn't do me any good. I mean, most, and, and honestly, most of the people that, that didn't like Momo just didn't get it. Like it's right. a weird, it is a weird movie for a weird audience. It's, it's for people like me who, who love seventies movies and love driving movies and love, uh, television, like paranormal television. Lyle's entire sections are just poking fun at paranormal TV, you know? Yep. And then the, the movie, totally the vibe of basically the legend of Boggy Creek. Yeah. And yeah. those type of movies where, you know, it's like, uh, you know, actually, you know what I was thinking when I was watching this? What do you think audiences in the 70s thought when they were watching these things? Because, you know, like the, the acting wasn't good. Yeah. The production wasn't good, but yeah. like there was no... But I don't think... They just I didn't think, expect it, right? Well, I think audiences back then might have been a little easier to scare. <laughs> that's true. Um, and I think because the world, maybe that's because the world has gotten so dark today. Maybe people just aren't as easy to scare. But also, I mean, you've got stuff like Saw out there. you know. And I've never watched any of those. It I happen. haven't either. I can't deal with gore. Um, but It's boring to me. Yeah. But, um, but I think it might have something to do with that because you watch Creature from Black Lake now and I really enjoy that movie. I mean, I love that movie actually, but it's not scary. Like I'm not, I, I hear, or I read articles about people watching the, the uh, Legend of Boggy Creek and like screaming in the theater and stuff. I'm like, what? Like, why? What? <laughs> I just what tweeted that? something about this the other day. All these people, I know you haven't seen it yet, but everybody's like, oh, watching Hellier. I'm totally scared. I'm like, there's nothing scary about it. Or even like go back and watch The Exorcist. Maybe as a kid, but like, and The Exorcist was like high quality. Yeah. I see. I ha- I saw the Exorcist when I was young, when I was like eighteen, mm. and I was tr- and I was like devouring everything film. Um, but I haven't seen it since, so I'm curious now because back then I knew I knew it terrified me. I'm curious if today I would find it scary. You, I I have a feeling just like knowing the mechanics of filmmaking as yeah. well as you do that there that creates some sort of separation. I think at least for me, like not that I'm anywhere near. I just. Basically, just so you know, when I keep referring to video editing, a few years ago, I did 200 days of daily vlogs. Holy crap. That's my only experience. (laughs) But you did it every day? Yeah, it was insane. So like what... Can you tell me real quick? I know this is totally off topic, but like how does... How do you do that? Like what... How does the... When do you edit it? Every... For me, I did it every night. I wouldn't, um, I know nice dad used when he did it, he used to do it in the morning after the day. Mm-hmm. I could not get up early and edit. That was just not me. I, I, at the time I was, I'd go out. Sometimes I'd be filming like drinking and I'd come home and I'd be half drunk and be like, well, I got three hours editing ahead of me and I just do it. Huh. I don't know why it was insane. What, <laughs> did you try that like nice dad style? Like what, how, how did you, that was edit? the inspiration for sure. Okay. It was huh. it was actually a challenge yeah. to myself. Like I I had the converse I had a conversation with a friend, and I kind of like like oh check out this guy like he does this every day and the person was unimpressed. Yeah, and we were like half drunk, so I, I said something like I'm like dude I couldn't do that every day you couldn't do that every day, 
And then for some reason, that just like became like this bug in my head. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do that every day. And then by the time I got to 200 days, I was like, I am done. What were you shooting with? A little can, a little, a little small cannon. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the, the model anymore. It's like a, a T3I or something? Um, here, let me grab it. Um, what the hell is this called? Oh, G7X. Yeah, I, I'm. See, I'm curious about vlogging. I did it. I I started a, a channel, and it's out there still because I just quit like a year and a half ago. But it's called Small Town Filmmaker, and then I think I only did like seven or eight eight episodes, and it wasn't vlogging. It wasn't like daily at all. I mean, I think I was doing like one episode a week. But even that, I was having a hard time finding the time to to do it, and I really enjoyed doing it, but I it wasn't, you know, like my time making money these days is working on STM. And then when I'm not doing that, I got to spend time with my kid. Not, I have to, I want to spend time with my kid, you know, (laughs) and it's, it's getting, it's getting harder to find time to do filmmaking related stuff unless it's work. So I don't know what that means. Like creatively, I wonder what kind of repercussions yeah, I don't know how Casey Neistat does it, to be honest. Yeah. Well, he's slowed way down, right? Yeah, he's not doing daily anymore, I yeah. don't think. It's been a while. I haven't watched him in a while. <clears throat> I just watched his most re I mean, he's so good as a s- storyteller. It's really easy to write off like YouTubers and influ- quote-unquote influencers or whatever. And I kind of do hate the the culture that's grown up around that. But... Right. um. But at the same time, like Casey's such a good storyteller. Like just as someone that tells stories, I'm impressed by how I've he learned does so that. much from yeah, him. yeah. And same with Peter. And also, just like if you're a filmmaker watching that stuff, that stuff really does. Like they, as cheesy as some of it can be, it really does inspire you. Like they'll do they'll do episodes that speak directly to you because they're creators and they've gone through the same stuff you're going through. So, well, I tell people. All the time, if they want to learn how to film and edit video, mm-hmm. vlog every day. It will destroy yeah. you. But when you come out, you, you can't learn that fast any other way. I mean, I wasn't great when I was done, but I learned so much. Did you do anything after that? Video-wise, I did yeah. like one little short thing. And then it's, I just started focusing on podcasting. Body, yeah. Because, I mean... You know, logistically, it's not that different as far as, you know, like cut this part out, scoot this over. But it's so much easier because you're only dealing with like one or two layers. Yeah. (laughs) And you don't have to worry about color, transition of light and all of the, you know, all of the concerns, pacing, visual pacing, make sure you cut at the right moment, L cuts, all of that stuff. What did you listen to podcast wise, like before you got into it? Oh, that's a good question. I don't really remember. Uh, that's a really good question. I think my only experience really had been maybe a couple episodes of Joe Rogan, mm-hmm. um, Nerdist at the time, I think. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Stuff You Should Know. I think those were like my first three, which is funny. I don't listen to any of those three anymore. I I used to listen to Stuff You Should Know. I, I can't remember stuff you should know and stuff they don't want you to know. Mm-hmm. I always I always enjoyed listening to those. Um but I used to listen to podcasts for eight hours out of my day because I worked I worked a medical billing job. So that oh, was yeah. all that got me through the day was like podcasts and 
Pandora. I was driving a catering van, so that's why I was. Oh I yeah, got into it. I'm do it. Um, but yeah, but I'm I'm really glad though that you you enjoyed on the trailer. That's a big that's a big win. Yeah, there's um, a lot of my notes actually, which we'll probably go into, is a lot of like about phenomena, mm-hmm. and I mean especially you having. I'm using the word loosely, but studied, but like, you know, been involved at least with telling the story of this stuff. You have to have theories. Uh, Oh, about like UFOs and all that. Yeah. I thought, you know, there's so many, I've seen, by the way, I've seen everything you guys have made. So I'm very prepared. There was a few that I was behind. I'm like, Momo was one I hadn't seen. I just watched that a few days ago. Yeah. Um, But I thought maybe we could focus on just, for the sake of our sanity, UFOs and Flatwoods Monster, because I think they kind of go together well. Yeah. I love Flatwoods too. I don't get to talk about that one much. That's another one of the flops, by the way. Really? It's so funny. Everyone, like the ones you've mentioned as a flop, I'm like, I love that one. Yeah. No, Flatwoods was painful for me because I loved it. And when it, when it didn't really take off, I was so disappointed. And, and I mean, that was the thing about Momo that is so disappointing for us. It's not like... It's not the money side of it. I mean, obviously you want to make a living at, at this, so you you want it to do well. But it was that Momo to me was we had found a way to tell a story that hadn't been done before in in movies. Like tell me another movie that uses that device to tell the story. That's yeah, like three things actually, right? Yeah. It's I mean, you've got a you've got a documentary. It's weird. You've got a a television show late night horror host that exists in a fictional world who's also introducing you to a fictional movie that is based on an actual real world event that you learn (laughs) about through a real world documentary. So there's, I mean, it was so exciting to us that we had come up with that and that it, it, you know, when we, we all watched it, everyone thought it worked. We all, and I still think it works, but it was so exciting that we had figured out a way to tell that, that, that none of us could really point to something else and say this, this like does that same same thing, and um, so I think that was like the the hardest thing about Momo not making, not finding its audience at least not yet. It it just went sleeper. up on Prime, yeah, it just went up on Prime, and we've had movies do that, like Invasion on Chestnut Ridge, like you said, didn't find an audience until it went up on Prime. Now it's like a lot of people tell me that's their favorite movie. That's how. That's how Adam Wingard found us was Invasion on Chestnut Ridge. And um and so like <clears throat> it was it was painful when it came out and it didn't do well just because I was like, man, I was really hoping like horror fans would find this and you know, like people that genuinely love horror and and old movies and people that love movies. It's a movie for people that love movies. Have you seen there's a documentary called VHS Lives? Um, I think I've seen parts of it. It's on Prime, isn't it? I was, Is that the one? Yeah, on exactly. Yeah. I was completely unaware of that for anybody listening. It's a it's a documentary about people who love VHS movies. And mm-hmm. I had forgot about how many of those use the term loosely, but B movies, like we were pumping so many of those out in the eighties. Yeah. It was unaware that there was that whole subculture. And it seems to me that subculture would love Momo. Yeah. Because, you know, at least, you know, two thirds of the movie is based on that kind of vibe. And some of them found it, like, you know, when someone that, that was into 
that stuff or is into that like late night horror host or, or that VHS subculture, they, they get it. Cause they'll, they get it. They get the whole thing. And, um, and so that I think eventually it'll find those people, but you know, I thought, you know who I was so pumped up about, uh, Cliff being involved because Cliff is friends with, uh, Bobcat Coldway. And I was like, I was like, dude, you have to give this to Bobcat. I was like, because I I know he would love this, and he sent it to him, and then I never heard anything. So I don't know if you watched it or not, but I I thought like there was there were people that like Adam Wingard watched it and told me he he loved it, and it was super goofy, and he responded to all the stuff I hoped he would. So I think the right people will get it if they watch if they watch the stupid thing. <laughs> What's funny is that when Prime started, it sucked. Mm-hmm. And now it is, it's my favorite because it's a treasure trove now. Yeah. Everything that all these other platforms are ignoring independent film, um, yeah. B movies from the 70s and 80s, um, paranormal documentaries. Yeah. Um, all that stuff is all on Prime. Yeah. And- Prime's, it's a, it's a, it's been amazing for us because I think it's totally, it's the reason we're here. In a lot of ways, um, you know, like as a business, we took off when Video Direct opened, which Video Direct is like their platform for filmmakers. And we don't have to go through distributors or aggregators. We go right to, to Video Direct and post our own content. And then all we have to deal with is Amazon's quality control department. Um, but unfortunately, like since 2007, they've cut our revenue by like 70%. And it, it just keeps keeps getting worse every year. So stifle their own. Yeah, business. it's crazy. But they know they know they can get away with it because no one else is doing what they're doing. So yeah, and, I mean, and they've also seen, yeah. Well, and that's what I was just going to say. They've seen YouTube successfully cut revenue from their creators. That's so fucked <laughs> to an insane degree. So so I mean they're they're aware they can get away with it and. uh so that kind of sucks for us because every year we basically are just trying to make up for the loss of revenue from whatever they've cut, you know, from the year before. And it it's interesting too, because we're in a weird position. We we talk to distributors all the time, you know, and I know a lot of like indie filmmakers, they that's the the end game is like find a distributor. And we talk to distributors all the time. We've been talking to a huge company for months now. Um but like it comes down to what they're what they're offering isn't anywhere near what we can make just doing it ourselves. And right. so so for us, even though they could potentially get us in front of a larger audience, we would be giving up the the money that keeps us alive. So we're weird. Like it's a weird our business model isn't done by anyone else. So I never know how to like what I told the guys at this company is you you have to stop looking at us as this is a, a little like indie filmmaker who made a movie and, and start looking at it as like, we're an independent production house. Like Jason Udis, who uh, co-wrote Momo, him and, and Zach, who's my director of photography, they're like huge horror fans and they love trauma. And they always compare us to, <laughs> to trauma as a, as a, a production house and that we're, we're putting out multiple titles and we've, we're growing this like audience that's sort of self-sustaining. And so that's who I 
whenever I talk to a distributor, I have to tell them up front, like, you, this is how you have to approach us. You can't just say, look, we can offer you an audience because we have an audience and they're extremely supportive and loyal. Like, we just launched a Kickstarter on Thursday last week and we hit 100% of our goal in four days. And it was a massive goal compared to what, what every other year was. So. Yeah, you hit like what seventy percent in the first twenty four hours. Yeah, it was funny though. My wife was having a an absolute panic attack for three days because we've never run a Kickstarter where we didn't hit a hundred percent in the first twelve hours ever. Oh, shit. Every single time we've run a, a Kickstarter, we hit hundred percent. But um, that's because like the first year was six grand, uh, the second year was like twelve, I think, and then it went up to like twenty, and then last year's was like thirty. And this year we asked for 55. So, I mean, it was like a substantial increase over previous years. So I didn't expect us to hit 100%. And for us to hit 100% in three days was pretty impressive. But I mean, the budget on UFOs alone would take up a large chunk of what this, what this campaign brought. <laughs> UFOs was, was a insane, um, undertaking financially. One which hopefully pays off, but we'll we'll see. Well, one of the things about putting out this stuff right now, I think we're starting to see. We kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but like, I think people are tired of this. You know, we made a joke about it earlier, but you know, like the all the ghost shows on TV. Yeah, is is, is night vision and jump scares. Go to a commercial, find out it wasn't anything. Right, and every time they do an EVP, they get something, which is just complete bullshit. Yeah. And we know it's scripted and no, I'm not throwing shade at any of the people involved with that. Good for them to find a way to make a living. Sure. But at the same time, people are, they've got over the entertainment factor. And Mm -hmm. I think people are actually starting to look at the paranormal and the unreal with the real realistic lens in the mainstream. Right. There's always been the subculture, but. Yeah, I agree actually. And I think that's why, I think that's why we've, found an audience is like that that is our audience and when we, we you know like on the trail of ufos is was meant to be an introductory sort of series like someone who learned about ufos because of the tom DeLong stuff or because it's all over mainstream tv i wanted there to be like a way for that person to come in to the subject learn a bunch about it but also feel like hey there's other people out there like you who who are not insiders who are just learning about this and and here here's like your primer for the whole thing. And at the same time I've been told by a couple of people that the series offers a lot for like people who know everything about UFOs. So right. Yeah, so it, it doesn't know. feel like a you know it's not like the preschool version of of ufology. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like that. Especially you go into topics like I liked how you started where most people would end. Right. You know, like yeah. here's the current state. Now let's talk about the different forms of this phenomena: abductions, ghost lights, mm-hmm. um, Area 51. Breaking it down like that makes it very interesting because it's like, okay, let's get that off the table. Oops, smack my microphone. <laughs> Obviously, I'm talking with my hands, you know. But let's let's get the current state out of the way so that we can get into the. And I think that's why maybe people who are already familiar with the field, you know, like people like me. Mm-hmm. Who have grown up around it. Like yeah. I just posted a picture on Twitter right before we came on here. My grandfather left these books behind. 
Um, I've mentioned before to people listening to the show that he left like 40 fate magazines, mm-hmm. but he also had all these books on UFOs and there's two classic Adamski books in there. There's a Bud Hopkins book in there. There's a Craig Barker book in there. So I've grown up around this and I didn't watch it and think that you guys were um, doing what had been done over and over again. You know, it's kind of like the Superman story. People get sick of like, oh, poor Clark Kent. He has to grow up on a farm even though he has superpowers. Right. How many times are you going to hear Batman's origin story over and yeah. over again? You guys approached it in a different way and it made it fresh. Yeah, I think that was because... So Bigfoot was... To me, Bigfoot was really easy because I was watching... I mean, I've I've watched all the Bigfoot stuff and I hadn't seen a documentary or a miniseries or anything that was literally... A, a Ken Burns, here's the history of Bigfoot. That just hadn't been done, which is really like, that's a no brainer. Like I, I still can't, I still can't wrap my brain around the fact that there hasn't been someone that just did a series or, or, or even like an hour or two hour long special about Bigfoot that walked you through the whole history of it. And so like those first three episodes of on the trail of Bigfoot, that's what they were. But I knew coming into UFOs, that's not the case. Like there are plenty of, really good and that's the other thing is there there are really good UFO documentaries and really good independent UFO documentarians. And like James Fox is like a, a really good filmmaker. And um so so like I didn't want to do that uh approach to it. And so the the idea was let's first of all let's make this thing almost almost it's interconnected, but it's you don't have to watch it in any order other than maybe put the first episode first and the last episode last, and you could almost <laughs> watch it out of order and um you know and, and walk you through all the different different topics and, and subtopics in every episode um, it, other than that first episode where you kind of like set the set the stage and you also like the first episode also acts as a mission statement for what we're gonna do, which is like you know i i mean yeah the the series is about the the subject of ufos but we want to put the, the sort of the focus back on the people that are involved right. so instead of like instead of like doing the the typical television thing and and having it be strictly about the the phenomenon itself um you know, I want to. I want to introduce you to a witness named Dan, who's like really a believable UFO witness in the first episode, and I want him to be sort of. It's interesting because we're we're doing all the back and forth between like where the subject sits today, but you're at the heart of that whole episode is him and his UFO story, which isn't an insane story. It wasn't like abducted or anything. It's a really basic sort of UFO sighting, but it's you can see like how that affected him. I really liked that those scenes with Dan too. Like even when I'm just filming him from the backseat of the car and just let the camera run for a while. Oh, like when his sister calls. Yeah. When he's on his, on the phone with his sister, like, um, I just thought, I thought that all worked really well. And Greg Bishop was like the heart of that episode. I told him this the other day, like you, Greg is the one that's, putting it all in perspective with, with what he says. Cause he's, he, he's got this line. I just pulled this line cause I was trying to get it in a trailer where I'm cutting. Um, but he has this line where he's talking about, uh, you can, you can focus on like the craft and how fast was it going and what did it look like and all this stuff. But it, like that stuff's all irrelevant when you really consider <laughs> like the people at the heart of, you know, the guy that saw the craft. 
Yeah. And like how it affected him and like what long term, like how did that affect his life? And how is does he have someone he can talk to about it? Stuff like that. It's putting humanity back into this, like it's like what I was saying earlier about the sensationalization. Yeah. It's it, like this has become like this. It's a circus. It's just and it's I mean it kind of always has been and it's gross and it's yeah. it's evil and there's all this um, you know, I had Ryan Ryan Singer on a previous ep- uh, episode and he was talking about all these guys that are in there that are believing in, in UFO, they're promoting the UFO topic, but they're also promoting these conspiracy theories that all go back to that anti-Semitic elders yeah. um, oh, yeah. of Zion bullshit article. Yeah. yeah. And that's all part of the scene too. And it's gross because that's the part you want to get rid of. That's what's, oh, geez, that's a rabbit trail, but the lizard people guys. Oh, um, David Icke. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is like, <laughs> anti-Semitism. Um, oh yeah. It's all driven by, you know, when they say the bankers, that's what yeah. they're talking about. Yeah. It's <laughs> crazy. Um, but yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Like the, the, the sensationalism and then just like the, and this isn't, I don't know if people have taken it this way or are going to take it this way when it comes up, but the, the episode isn't necessarily falling in any direction on any one topic. So we're talking about TTSA, but we're not saying like, TTSA and Tom DeLonge are out to scam everyone. We're just kind of saying like, quit focusing on it. Like you're all, everyone's fighting about it constantly online. Like Twitter is a, just a constant war over like pro, <clears throat> pro DeLonge camp and anti DeLonge camp and all this stuff. And like, it's so negative. Um, I'm, I've managed to keep myself pretty removed, pretty far removed from the UFO community. Um, just because it, it really does seem super negative to me, but they all are. I mean, Bigfoot is just the same. Cryptids are the same, and ghost. The ghost community is so busy falling over itself trying to get on TV. They don't know what's going on <laughs> on Travel Channel. Yeah, uh, anything they can get on Travel Channel. Uh, what's have you heard of Diana Pazulka? She no. wrote the book American Cosmic. No. So she she wrote this book. It's a, it's a spectacular book. And essentially her, she, she's a religious researcher. That's her background. And she started studying the topic of UFOs, not necessarily like what is the phenomena. Oh, wait, I, I did hear about this. I know, I know, I know what, I haven't yeah. read it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah basically on. saying UFOs are becoming a quote unquote, a secular modern religion. Essentially. Sure. And it's very totally obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the fighting camps, right? You know, you got the Protestants against the Lutherans, you know, whatever there's yeah. this, but, everybody's the same religion supposedly. Right. Um, and it's the same with the UFOs, you know, like ancient astronaut theorists against, you know, the, the anti-Semites. Um, but she got into, she said something about Tom Dong. I don't think she was trying to, she's, I followed her for a while and she's not a, a trouble starter. You know, she's not, she said something. I missed the beginning of it. I only caught the tail end of it. But she said something about you're talking about <laughs> about Tom DeLong or something. And then she just got savaged and she quit Twitter. She's yeah. like, screw this. Yeah. It's so unfortunate because she's such a thoughtful person that you know these people scared her off the platform. Yeah, it's a that's a it's a scary thing because I have I, I have a family and we've already dealt with like someone threatening my wife. Um, oh fuck couple years ago. So I, I try to keep out of this kind of stuff anymore just cause, just cause I don't want my family to have to deal with it. Um, but I'll put, 
I'll put my own sort of commentary in, into <laughs> into something like this. Like the oh man, the last episode has Shannon has a line about um, despite what the what is it? Despite what the you haven't watched the last episode yet, but no, um, she says, "Crap! How how does it go?" Despite what the current slate of project or t- television shows floating around the bowl of the network <laughs> might tell you um i forget it's 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 very much like a slam on, on the current state of like paranormal television and all that kind of stuff i mean they're just squeezing they've, they've taken a topic that's very it's very worthwhile discussing and mm-hmm. trying to understand and it's important it, to try to squeeze as much money out of it as they can yeah and it's it's really unfortunate. I mean, I wasn't even aware of how much. Um, I don't want to keep ragging on them, but the Travel Channel was doing this until recently. I was completely unaware of all their shows. Oh, it's bad. There were seventy two. Oh there were seventy two. Seventy two shows that were in development, paranormal related shows at the, and that's just at, at that network. And I know this because, like, we, you know, like we have a manager, so so we we've she kind of has to has to filter out what what we want to even hear anymore from networks but we don't even really take meetings anymore because all they wanted they all just want to do the same stuff Mm -hmm. and um you know like we had some good meetings last year with like a company that was more interested in in doing something about the way small town monsters makes movies and stuff like that but even that turned into a little bit of more of the same like yeah, yeah, no, we we love what you do, but maybe we, like we could follow you guys when you go out to make the movie, and then maybe while you're making a movie, you could like go look for the monster in the in the woods. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm probably not going to do that. <laughs> and then it's going to end this way. Yeah. Have you heard my Megan Fox story? No. It was the first when we made Minerva Monster, we were contacted by a production company immediately, like before Minerva was even out. They started contacting us in December of that year, and Minerva came out. Well, not that year; it would have been the year prior. So it would have been December of 2014. We started getting contacted by a production company, and um, just because there were stories running about the fact that we were making a movie, and they wanted to do a, a reality show with. Uh, small town monsters where it would be me and the two guys who were producing Minerva at the time in a van. And we had these meetings and it was, in, you know, like we were super excited because we, you know, first of all, none of us really had any idea what was going to happen with small town monsters at the time. And it, this was like unbelievable to us that we were even talking to a production company. And they're like, yeah, what we really would like to do is almost like a Scooby-Doo vibe. Like we want you guys to be in this van and you're driving around and you're going from small town to small town and you're finding out about their monsters and you're looking for their monsters. And and then they were like, do you guys know of any celebrities that are into Bigfoot? And um, I think one of the guys was like Rob Lowe or something like that. And they're like, no, we want it to be like a lady, like a very attractive... And they ended up pitching us a show that was called Small Town Monsters that was myself and these two producers and Megan Fox in a van driving around the country uh, looking for Bigfoot. And I mean, obviously. And they're like, oh yeah, and she'll be the one to talk to the camera. Yeah. Well, and this was at a weird, like I I feel like it was 2014. So I'm not even sure what she was doing at that time. But I thought it was completely... Uh, unrealistic to think they were going to get Megan Fox in a van with us to begin with. 
but obviously the show never happened, so we're good. She's an it's interesting just, character, actually. She's into this stuff. I mean, and she's super it. smart. Everybody plays her yeah. off like she's an idiot, but I saw her. She had an archaeology show for a little while. I don't know if she still has it. She's very intelligent and very educated, yeah. but everybody plays her off as a pair of tits, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, you can't, Unfortunate. Have, you can't have a brain if you're attractive. Didn't, yeah. didn't you know? Yeah, that's the rule. That's the Hollywood that's rule. They say, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I have some questions on phenomena here. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you mentioned, I think it's is episode two were airships. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that topic. That's, I'm, I mean, I was aware of this stuff, but the way you put it together there really sparked something in my head. So for everybody that's listening that haven't seen it yet, which would be everybody because it's not out to the public yet, it's essentially, I think there's what, one, two, three, four, five big movements of UFO types. Mm-hmm. There's the airships, which look more like uh, steampunk balloons. Yeah. Then there's the classic saucers, um, Foo Fighters also. Um, then there's the cigar shapes. Then there's yep. the triangle shapes of the 80s. Yep. And now everything is more orby. Yeah. Um, what's interesting, you, I think I think it's you that says it in the episode about how it seems to follow technology. Yeah, that's I always mean, bothered me. <laughs> actually, maybe you said that on an episode of Monsteropolis. No, I asked. I asked. Oh, do you listen to Monsteropolis? I do. Thank you. Um, no, I asked uh, Alejandro actually about that because that's mm-hmm. always bugged me. Uh, is that technologically the crafts? the craft that are being seen seem to jive with where technology is at the time. So you had those airship waves kick off in like the late, the the tail end of the 1800s and then carry on into the 1900s, Um, which, you know, correlates with like Zeppelin and blimps and all that kind of stuff. And then, the the UFOs, the flying saucers, they take off at a time when it's when everything is very like, you know, metal and nuts and bolts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, aluminum. Yeah, everything. and then it, you get into the really wacky stuff in the seventies. That's like, I mean, the cigar shaper, just one aspect of that. I, I, Stan Gordon tells this story in like episode three. I think it might be four. It's three or four where he talks about these like balls with spikes that were flying around. <laughs> And it's so like it's so weird when you hear it, um, but that that seems to be like in the seventies you hit the weird like funky era, which has also put me in the mindset of like Bigfoot. How Bigfoot reports during the seventies were were so weird because everything was like you you had like the Minerva Monster and Momo, and those aren't traditional Bigfoot right descriptions but during the 70s there's a book i have called far out shaggy funky monster something like that <laughs> it's, it's like i'm not kidding it's like a thousand it's like as big as the bible and it's just reports of like bigfoot during the 70s and they're all weird like they're all <laughs> they're all insane but then you hit the yeah the 80s is the black triangles and then today everything's lights in the sky um the 80s is completely Especially the airships in the 80s fit in the most, right? Because the airships, that's what was around. Although uh, most people weren't aware of them because they weren't very common. Yeah. So these people in country in the country weren't aware of them. And then in the 80s, we had the stealth bombers that were triangular shaped and black. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and so that, that, that always bothered me. So I asked 
Yeah, I asked Alejandro about that. And then everyone sort of ended up talking about that without my prodding. So like Sean Kim and Jason talked about that as well. The thing about the technology moving or the um, technology matching up with the phenomena, that's something that Keel mentions in Mothman Prophecies. He says if you know it was like 1475, people would have been seeing witches with lanterns on yeah. the end of their brooms. Yeah. Which to me... Like I think you say in there that it seems to hint that people were seeing technology, Earth-made technology. Yeah. And I also think that it's possible, once again, there are multiple explanations for everything, sure. I'm sure. But once again, it also seems that it could be that somehow it's relating to our brains. Yeah. I think that's how Keel and Valet both interpret it. Mm-hmm. Is that there's this phenomena that doesn't know how to manifest completely. Yeah. Using our perceptions to manifest itself. Yeah. That's what I like about ufology over some of the other subjects we look at is there's so many rabbit, rabbit holes, rabbit trails you can go down. Um, but the, um, the technology thing's weird though. Um, and it would also indicate that whatever, I mean, maybe it is something in the brain, maybe it's something mimicking you know, the technology we possess for whatever reason. I don't know. Did you get to the story about that Ron Regeer told about the kids that are watching TV and the, uh, there's like a, they see these figures on the other end of the TV looking yep. back at them. <laughs> they freak out. The TV goes on the fritz. They run outside and there's a UFO over the house. Well, my mom found out that I was watching these episodes and she wanted to watch. So we watched. And when that happened, she's like, Oh, that's freaky. Yeah. <laughs> But what I think is most entertaining about that story is that them on the other side are just as confused as to what's going on. Right. So yeah. they're not, they're not in control of it either. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I don't, I always feel like such a, like I'm copping out when I, when someone asks me about like my opinions on this stuff or my theories on this stuff. Cause I just don't, I haven't formulated much of anything yet. You know, like when it comes to Bigfoot, I think Bigfoot's like an undiscovered ape. When it comes to, UFOs. Uh, and that's because I've experienced things. I've talked to enough people. That's kind of like where I'm at based on the current, the, the, where the evidence seems to lead and what I've experienced for myself. But when it comes to like UFOs, I haven't really experienced much of anything. And I've only really, you know, the, the, the witnesses I have talked to <clears throat> would, it, it hasn't led me in one direction over another. So, you know, I know when it, you mentioned Flatwoods, like when it comes to Flatwoods, I think I don't necessarily think there even was a, a, a UFO that night. Um, I think there was potentially a rocket that fell from the sky that was being tested by the U.S. government. And I think that's what they encountered on top of the hill, because I think that's what Ed and Fred think they encountered. Yeah, he says that almost exactly, doesn't he? Yeah. He said it, it was one of the, I think it's M6 or uh, M8. I don't remember the exact number. I can't remember what he says. B12? Is that a thing? That was a, I think that was a bomber. Is that a vi- vitamin? <laughs> <laughs> we are experts uh, in the field, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> experts in the field. Uh, but yeah, no. They, so, so where I'm at, I don't know where I'm at because like, I'm still kind of <laughs> taking it all in you know, as I go. I think and, that's um, a good place for this kind of stuff, though. You don't want to... Th- that's, that's probably the, at the core of the problem with all these fields of study. Yeah. That people jump to theories. 
so early and then they, they have claim, to back them up. They claim them and then they they feel like they have to adhere to that. So like, I mean, that's the thing about like, even, even my opinion that Bigfoot is an ape, like I'm not, I'm not going to violently defend that idea. Like I don't, <laughs> I, don't I don't care enough about what it is to, to like go to war over it. Um, Plus most of the stuff we're dealing with is filtered through so many things. Even like when you go to um, directly, to Freddie and Eddie May mm-hmm. and their stories, they're telling it over 50 years after it happened, mm-hmm. more than that. So it's filtered through their life experiences and all that we've learned about memory. The more you remember sure. something, the more it changes. Now, that story is especially hard to track, like the reality of it, because um, you've got, I, I'm going to say some things that some people get weirdly upset about but i really think um sanderson and gray barker contaminated that entire case pr- pretty badly oh gray barker contaminated everything yeah but he totally did yeah but um sanderson isn't doesn't have that kind of reputation but to me it seems like he was just as bad as barker on that case i think he was a believer but he was an exaggerator well, it, it also seems like he was really just kind of following what Barker was saying without questioning it. So, like, supposedly... Yeah, Keel had that same problem. They showed up, like, right after the Flatwoods incident happened, and and they they set about interviewing all these witnesses, like, separately from, from, from one another, or so they claimed. But, like, in talking to Ed and Fred, they don't ever remember that. They don't ever remember being set aside separately with Gray Barker and Ivan Sanderson telling their story. And they also don't ever remember a lot of the details of that story that have sort of been passed off as fact. Right, like the dog dying, which... Well, didn't. the dog dying, which <laughs> didn't happen. They never saw a UFO. Yeah. Oh, never. they weren't even playing football. Yeah. It was, it was Gene who was playing football with, with three other boys. Yeah. So I started reading George Dudding's book. Okay. And comparing the two and that's what he says he says specifically in later stories it would say that eddie and freddie were playing football but they were at their grandmother's house with their mother okay i'd have to it's interesting what is i can't remember what fred says i can't remember if he says there i feel like he does say that they were playing football i I think he does too because the, the the other problem is that their mother seems to have sort of gone along with whatever Parker or Sanderson or um, Fashino sort of said. Right. And in some of those cases, I'm not positive they were being accurate. So, well, there's so many, so many people will look at these cases and go, oh, these were simple folk. They don't lie. Yeah. 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 Yes, people do. People make stuff up. All the look time. at Travis Walton. He was a total liar. <laughs> I can't comment on this. <laughs> The guy was the right before he claimed to be abducted by aliens. He was in trouble for for trying to uh, counterfeit payroll checks. Like it wasn't really? a very trustworthy person. I didn't know that. I just heard that recently. I think it was on an episode of The Saucer Life. Huh. Um, but yeah, the, the the once once Barker and Sanderson get there, then all of a sudden you've got like there was a crashed UFO on the hill, and the kids walked up to it, and all these kids saw mm-hmm. this UFO. They never saw a UFO, like. Their their mom and Jean said they saw something glowing down in the woods below, uh, below the hill line, the tree line, yeah. where they were. 
Um, but they never saw what it was. You know, like they think it might have been something that landed down there. And then they encounter this thing, you know, and they take off down the hill. It's it's funny we made a movie about that because any time we had to do interviews about the Flatwoods monster case, I was like, crap, what am I going to say? Because they always want you to, <laughs> you know, like most interviews, they want you to have like really scary stories. Most of these shows are having us on, so I'll tell them spooky stories. Right. And, you know, like I, I'm fine with that. I totally get that's a draw. And, you know, like when you're on coast, you better come ready to to scare people or whatever. Yeah. But, Squeeze it in before between the commercials. Yeah. But like with Flatwoods, I I would say, I mean, you could boil that story down to like 20 seconds. I mean, some kids saw something laying on a hill. They walked up the hill. They saw it. They ran away. <laughs> yeah. Dudding's book is like 40 pages. Yeah. Dudding is a machine, man. The Most guy. of it is just like the intro. And then it gets into the incident. The incident's like, I, I read it in a minute before I was reading it this morning. Said, oh well, I'll try to get through as much of the incident as I can mm-hmm. because I want to hear his perspective on it. Yeah. I read it in a minute. I was like, oh, the rest of the book, I guess, is just <laughs> didn't about take what much. Happens after. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's funny because it's one of my favorite cases, if not my favorite individual case that we've covered. But there's so little to the actual incident, like the big incident. Um, but there there are a lot of little side things that went on and it's funny like that we got a ton of blowback from locals and flatwoods for not doing more about like this the ufo scene across the country at the time you know because a lot of people like to tie all that in together because of fashino and i said first of all fashino like threatened to sue us for making a movie about the Flatwoods Whoa. Monster. So I wasn't about to do anything that touched on anything he could potentially say was his research. Um, and second of all, I just, that wasn't the story I was trying to tell. I wanted to tell a story about how a, a an actual event, it, it becomes something else entirely, you know, in a, in a small town like Flatwoods. And then I've been Which in some ways, Mirror's Mothman, right? Yeah, I've been redoing the same <laughs> theme over and over <laughs> but i mean it is it's it goes back to what that statement in on the trail of ufos you get caught up in this other stuff and you forget about the human part of it mm-hmm. you know the, the story where i think bishop says it at one point he, he says he, they, they experienced something yeah what did they experience but we we get everybody wants to throw their stuff in especially somebody like ray barker who's he is a trickster he's a known trickster sanderson seems like a gullible guy um, I listened to a long, there's a like $3 for $3 on Amazon. You can buy this quote unquote video. It's more mm-hmm. like a slideshow mm-hmm. with a 40 minute interview between Sanderson and long, long chalk Nebel. That's free on YouTube. I wish I had known that before I spent $3. It's, we, that's the audio <laughs> that's in our, in our movie. Actually. Is it? Yeah. We have audio from that in our movie. Because he, he just, the way he describes it is completely different than everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, when he says, he says, uh, and I think actually his description of some of it puts um, light onto some of the other stranger aspects of it, like it being green. He says, no, it was aluminum gray and it looked green because the flashlights were making the foliage reflect on it. Yes. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense to me. But then he starts talking about that that ace of spades shaped thing Mm -hmm. is glass. Hmm. I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. That seems a little strange. Yeah, there's there's some 
sketches or illustrations done that I've seen that um, I think they actually have them at the Flatwoods Monster Museum in Sutton um, that sort of show like a more realistic version of what Ed and Fred claimed to see. Um, and interestingly enough, like other than the fact that the, the, that are, we call them Bob, but um, the Flatwoods monster that we used in our movie, um, other than the fact that it was a little too uniform in shape, it didn't really, it didn't have that kind of rocket shape toward the bottom. I was actually told by Fred that what we had in the movie looked very similar to what he saw. Wow. Uh, and so what we, you know, what we had in our movie was a, <laughs> were some steel drums that my brother-in-law welded together. And then, you know, he made the, made the whole head and, and everything. But, um, well, the head almost feels like a pumpkin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it lantern. Yeah. It, it kind of has to, but, but that was, Fred told me the shape of the head and everything was actually really similar to what they saw. Wow. So, um, so what they've, but what's funny is you go to, you go anywhere online, and for whatever reason, there is a huge fandom built up around the Flatwoods monster. And what what that fandom is sort of like celebrating is nothing like, you know, what Ed and Fred saw. Which I'm not demeaning that or making you know no. pointing that out. I mean, but that that's what happens. The the strange thing about it too is the arms mm-hmm. don't make sense with the body, right? Right. But if you think about how the arms look like branches of trees. Mm-hmm. it starts to make a little bit more sense. Except Ed and Fred didn't see arms. Right. They saw two little sort of antenna sticking out near the neck area. Is there what would not the neck, but you know what I mean? Like up, yeah. up near the top of the, the, the object, Under there were the tip. two, two small sort of antenna looking protuberances. Um, the, the arms seem to come in from the newspaper. That's like the newspapers got involved and that was where the insanity really took hold because then you get like, the, there were, there was a newspaper that reported, I think they called it like a Frankenstein like monster, right? Mm-hmm. Well then because of that, there were literal cartoons like a day or two later in a lot of the newspapers of these kids running away from a, a monster that looked like Frankenstein because there, it was just, the the way it was being reported on was so ridiculous and over the top that it became like this is what these people claim they saw now now it's like a fire breathing Frankenstein monster chasing Floating them across the, the ground hill. yeah yeah I mean it was really a weird weird way that that story morphed the more it was talked about it's like the game telephone yeah exactly like it that's I mean I did one delve into most of my, most of my episodes are either conversations or just me talking about um, thoughts on what I'm reading. But I did one delve into like a research episode and I did Gray Barker's perceptions of Mothman. And it's really clear. I mean, actually, I didn't realize that until I said that, but what I counterbalanced um, Gray Barker's Silver Bridge with was your documentary. Mm. Um and specifically the exact words of the witnesses. And I'm like, well, here's what Gray Barker's saying. Here's what the actual person said. Yeah. And you can see, you know, it's like a contagion. It just boils into something. So you no longer have contact with what the original thing was. I mean, there are, I think there are some valid cases of Mothman um, or witness accounts of Mothman that don't fit the description of a bird. Right. But now you have all these other things like a 
what what Keel did to some degree was wasn't so good because associating it as like an omen and for the bridge collapse, it just added this weight to all these things that maybe wasn't necessarily needed. Yeah, I have issues with Keel that the more I look into like it, stuff related to Mothman, it, that's where it's coming from. It just seems like there's a lot of uh there's a lot of statement of things without ever backing it up. Right. And I've I've always had I've always had issues, major issues with him stating in the Mothman prophecies that there were over two hundred witnesses, but he he never backs that up in any way. Yeah, I tried to find numbers too. There are no numbers of how many witnesses there were anyway. Yeah. And it's it's funny because you can I've said before, I think you probably could find two hundred people in Point Pleasant that that claim to see Mothman. Because every time I go there, I meet someone who whose grandma or or aunt or someone said they saw a Mothman in 66 and 67. Last time I was there, we did a, I did a talk at the library with Jeff Wamsley actually about Mothman. And we had probably three or four people afterward come up and tell us about like relatives. But I mean, having said that, there's gotta be something somewhere. If you're interviewing these people, you have to be able to like back that up. Mary Heyer is who those reports really should have been going to. And she was mostly reporting on UFOs. Like her, her column occasionally mentions like Mothman, but it doesn't seem like it's anywhere near the same level as the, the number of UFO reports she was taking. Right. Yeah. I mean, and you have Gray Barker coming in. I mean, Gray Keel was under kind of under the sway of Barker in the sense that Barker was like his connection in Point Pleasant. And there are rumors that, you know, those weird phone calls that Keel would get, that that was Barker screwing with him. Yeah. And I believe that. Yeah, so do I. I mean, I, I've, I haven't heard any actual interviews with Gray Barker. I don't know if there actually are any to find. Mm-hmm. But there was um, Mosley, I think is the guy's name, his, like his best bud. Yeah. There's an, I heard an interview with him and two other guys. And basically that guy was like, he's like, oh yeah. He's like, Gray used to like to have a lot of fun. Yeah. Like, and that's the problem. You got all these cases where it's like, and it's not just Gray Barker. It's just, I think that so many of these phenomena, we never find out the, the strict truth on the phenomena, not only because you have tricksters coming in. You don't ever find out the truth. And then it, even if the truth is out there, it gets in, in the, in this age we live in, it's eventually it just seems to fall by the wayside again. Like I've seen that happen. I think our movie pretty conclusively would would sort of lead you to to believe that the curse of Cornstalk is nonsense, right? Like, right. I mean, it's it's in there that that originated in this play. We have the play. Here's the play. <laughs> like this <laughs> was not around before that. And I've had people come up and be like, "Dude, I loved your Mothman movie. How about that Curse of Cornstalk, man? That's crazy that that guy cursed this town." And they'll like talk to me about. And I'm like, you did, did you forget or did you overlook it because you'd rather you'd rather it be part of this curse, you know, the spooky curse or whatever? I don't know. There's there's a willful a willful ignorance of the truth in favor of spooky story, you know? Right. I see that a lot. Well, like in, in the case of the Mothman, like I'm for the most part, willing to dismiss all of the men in black stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that that was just Gray Barker. Interesting. Beefing things up. 
But then there's the account that Mary Hire has. And I'm like, I kind of trust Mary Hire. Yeah. And there was that weird dude, but she, he wasn't wearing black. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's, it's hard. That's, I think Flatwoods and, and Mothman, not only are they really close together in proximity, at least yeah. as far as the size of the United States, um, but there's a similarity in those two things where it's like, there's so many, they're so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That, that the stories are so ridiculous. The, like when you, if you just look at it from a nuts and bolts perspective, yeah, it sounds like bullshit. Yeah. But then there's so many conflicting things and there's, and it's so weird and so enduring and that there's so many believable details of these weird things. I think grafting can kind of fall into that too. Like there's that, they're, they're all within an, well, let me think. They're, they've all got to be within an hour and a half, 90 minutes, two hour drive from each other from, from, from Point Pleasant to Grafton to Flatwoods. And if you drive from Point Pleasant to, to Flatwoods, you drive right by Grafton. Um, there's this weird like triangle of, of West Virginia weirdness and they're all on the same route too. <laughs> and it's, yeah, you think that like if it was just locals, you know, uh, we'll say let's let's go with the most cynical perspective. It's just locals trying to drum up tourism. Yeah, that it would spread further. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it would yeah. be it would be scattered over more. But like that, there's concentrations in certain areas. It it seems to suggest something. You should have come up with a better story than Flatwoods, too. Like, I mean, Mothman's got multiple sightings and all all sorts of exciting stuff. Flatwoods has what amounts to like a 40 second sighting of some sort of weird object on top of a hill. Well, even with Mothman, it's like you could have come up with a better story because it's not super believable. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I think that's why they endure because it's like these, why would you make up something that dumb? Mm -hmm. You know, like why would you make it up? Mothman's got so many different descriptions as well. Oh, just, the just eyes the, are the only thing consistent, oh, right? Yeah, that's what I always say. The, the, the red eyes seem to be the only consistent physical characteristic. We we interviewed... Well, I mean, heck, just in the Mothman and Point Pleasant, you, I would say every eyewitness we talked to had a different description from the person before them. You know, like Lawrence Gray was basically seeing like a, a man standing in his room, you know, like wakes up and there's this figure in his room. Um, there's the brown man swimming in the air over the grave diggers. Yeah. He's okay. brown. <laughs> Which is also right on the, that's on, so this is a geography lesson, but like if you go from, if you're coming from Flatwoods back to Point Pleasant and you go down Charleston, you drive right by that town. Now I can't even remember what the name of that town is, where the first sighting happened. But it's interesting that, that, that the grave digger sighting is actually closer to Flatwoods than Point Pleasant. Right. It's like 40, 45 minutes south of point of, of Flatwoods instead of, you know, it's probably still an hour and 20 from, from point. Yeah, and all the Woodrow Derenberger stuff was par- near Parker. That's, that's, um, or Parkersburg mineral wells though. That's where Derenberger lived at the time, which is a, a really tiny, like little highway stop. Um, but right, right outside of Parker's, well, a little ways out, outside of Parkersburg. Um, but yeah, that I love West Virginia, man. It's the weirdest state because it just doesn't. There's no other state that has that feel to it, like the 
the hills and and hollers and and the way the forests feel there's there's a very specific mood to that state i can make every movie in west virginia and be happy there's that that mist over the yeah over the hills that just makes everything eerie it's part of the ohio valley and i've always said there's something real weird about the ohio valley it's it's a it's like it's lost in time or something it's a very it's a weird place cuz i grew up in more in southern ohio still like eastern you know Eastern Ohio, but south southeast Ohio. Now I live in like northeast Ohio. I'm basically in like a suburb of Cleveland. But I grew up down in the sticks. And growing up, we we had a TV, this tiny little TV. It was like 18 inches. And we'd set it on our, our dinner table and we'd put the rabbit ears on it. And the only channels we get, we would turn it on, you know, so we could watch sports. And the only the only channels we could get were uh, like Wheeling, West Virginia. And I remember as a kid watching the Wheeling, West Virginia channel and always being vaguely creeped out by it because there's just like, I mean, even then they were running commercials from like the seventies. This would have been like the late eighties, early nineties. And I remember thinking this, like, why are they, why don't they update any? It's like a signal from the past. (laughs) Yeah. And it's still (laughs) like that. It's still like that kind of today. Like it's, it's a very specific mood down there but i love it like i'm not i'm not demeaning the place it's just like it that is that is the vibe in in the ohio, the ohio valley vibe it's a weird weird thing and there's i've been noticing that there's a lot it seems like so many stories come from west virginia but now like there's a lot of stuff seems to be associated with ohio at least with paranormal content well even i mean even the mothman belongs to ohio as much as west virginia and you know, like the, a lot of those sightings were on the Ohio side of the river. In fact, like Hawking, Hawking is where the the three, the the person reported seeing three massive birds up in a tree. Like basically, it was reported as like a three Mothman sighting. There were a lot of sightings that came out of Hawking um, during '66 and '67. Not, it wasn't all, you know, that West Virginia side of the the river. And then it, there's there's this thing, and I don't know yet if we're going to get it into the Mothman legacy or not, but I really want to have it in there. There's, there's, Ohio has their own Mothman sightings from this um, one stretch of road outside of Ravenna, Ohio, and and in Ravenna there's this this uh, Ravenna Arsenal, which is like this abandoned military former former like military area. It's still owned like by the, the TNT. Government. Yeah, kind of like that, but it's still owned by the government. And it's all private property. And there's been tons of sightings of like Bigfoot and stuff around that area. But um, there's this one stretch of road that connects like Ravenna to Alliance. And there were all these sightings. This guy, this local paranormal investigator named Scott Miller investigated in like 2000. Oh, I always get the date wrong. It's sometime between like 2009 and 2012. I think it was 2011, but to some, at some point in there, there were all these sightings of this massive red eyed winged. I mean, it's the Mothman. Like it just sounds like the Mothman. Um, it was on this one stretch of road and they called it the freedom demon. And I thought it was so cool, but so outlandish. And then I was working, uh, at my medical billing job back in the day. And this girl I worked with who I became really good friends with, found out I was making like a Mothman movie. And when she saw our poster, she's like, you know, I've seen that. And I started talking to her about it. And it 
come to find out she used to work in a movie theater in Alliance, was driving from Ravenna to Alliance one night with her brother. And they both saw this thing, like flew right at their car, like gave me, I mean, this is someone I knew and, you know, like believed. And I've never, that was the first time I've had that kind of like talking. I mean, I've taken Bigfoot stories from people, but that was the first time I talked to someone who had a, like a Mothman sighting. Uh, and it's here in Ohio, but yeah, Ohio has a lot of, a lot of weirdness, especially, especially like Bigfoot. There's a lot of Bigfoot stuff. And I've seen my only like really weird sighting was of a, well, if you listen to Monsteropolis, you already know this, but I saw a really large, like glowing ball of light in the sky down near Zora, Ohio. See, that's to me, that's a big deal. Like yeah. I had a guest on recently is a friend of mine. But he talked about when he was younger, seeing three lights in the air, and then they converge into one. Oh wow! And it's like he's like, but that's you know, it's like that's it. You know, it's nothing more than that. I'm like, that's huge because that's not. There's nothing natural about that. Yeah. See that that's what's weird about mine is, I mean, the thing I saw was so big, I thought it was the moon. Like I thought it was a massive moon coming up behind the trees across the valley, and then I saw the moon in the sky, and I was like, well, crap! Like that's not. I called my dad over to see it because I was out there with my dad. We were actually in in the place. So all the forest scenes in Momo with like Bobo and Cliff, the, the posse sequence, that was shot where I saw this. So Whoa. it was like we were, that's where, that's where I was actually at the night that I saw that thing. And it, like what was weird is it rose out of the trees really slow. Like it probably took 30 seconds to get like 70% of the way out of the tree. And it hovered there for a couple seconds, and then it really slowly went back down into the trees. <laughs> like it was just coming up. And it was so far away. Um, you know, like I'd say at least half a mile away because of where the trees, I know where the tree lines are. Cause right. that's, that's also where my parents live. That's where I grew up. And so I, I knew what I was looking at in the distance it would be for me. And I, and I was like, well, there's nothing like in my head, he can't rationalize what I just saw. It wasn't like headlights reflecting off something. Um, it wasn't. And the only thing that would make any sense would be like a massive Chinese lantern. But it, it, would, have massive. Been, it would have had to have <laughs> been huge. It's a raising and lowering light, <laughs> lighthouse yeah. that has the ability to shrink and grow. <laughs> yeah. And it never, I don't think it, the other thing about it is I don't think it came all the way out of the trees. I can't, it's, it's funny. It wasn't that long ago, but it, in, in my memory, I can't remember the, the thing coming all the way out of the trees. I thought it got like 70, 80% out, you know, so you couldn't see the full circle and then real slowly went back down. And see, that's the thing that really bothers me about um i think i'm in my last episode i referred to these people as overt rationalists mm. they try to they try to reason everything away when you start like for example like we were joking around about oh oh it could be a massive lantern but you know like some people would take those seriously yeah and try to explain those things seriously but when your explanations become more absurd than the actual phenomena itself you know you're stretching like the Phoenix lights. Come oh, on, yeah. geese. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, I've it's funny. It. I just I just gave a quote on the Phoenix lights last night for a, like a vice story. And um 
I, I said like every year there's some outlandish like theory put out uh, to debunk the Phoenix lights. You can't like, you're not going to debunk it at this point. And we're probably going to never know what it actually was because, because every year there's more witnesses coming forward. You know, like we were interviewing Ron Regeer about the Phoenix lights. Well, you know, cause he, he in the second episode, but he was talking about, I mean, he worked at a, a radar at the, he was involved in that satellite at the time. And they track the Phoenix lights from the government satellite. Like they know it was there. And then you talk to <clears throat> David Weatherly was telling us that he's talked to people in Las Vegas who saw it over Vegas, the same, night, you know, like on its way down to, to Phoenix, which is a miserable five hour drive. Well, and there's the video of it too. You know, it's not just like yeah. where we're, it's one of the few cases where two things happen that you don't normally happen, uh, don't normally happen in, in UFO sightings. Right. A ton of people saw it at the same time and there's video of it. Yeah. And I mean, I watched the video. They come, those lights, they're out in the V formation and they converge. Mm-hmm. Birds can't do that. Birds yeah. can't hover. <laughs> Birds can fly, but they sure can't hover. And that's in like going back to Mothman too. That's the two details about Mothman that strike me as so weird that makes me believe there's an actual phenomena there is people will describe when telling the story as red glowing eyes. Mm-hmm. But the people who actually witness it say specifically, they're not glowing, they're reflective. And the fact that there's a consistency on that stands out to me. And then also when they say that it takes off like a helicopter, it just lifts up out of the air without flapping its wings. Yeah, That's very strange. Even birds can't do that. Birds have to run to get to jump to start. That, that for me, that's what it's about. It's about filtering, filtering things out. Where you go, okay, this this is this is probably noise and bullshit. But over here, some of these some of these cases, though, it's they're so old that it's impossible. Like that's the I think that's the problem we run into with Flatwoods. It's like I think you can believe what what Ed and Fred said they encountered, but it's everything else about that night that that is confusing. You know, like all the all the the UFOs that were supposedly streaking around the area and crash, you know, like what do we know about those who reported them? Right. And the fire breathing, (laughs) the dog dying, the vomiting that didn't happen. You know, like that's one of my favorite parts in that documentary is when I don't know if it's Fred or Eddie, because I I don't know the difference between the two of them, unfortunately Mm -hmm. in my head. But one of them says uh, about the dog dying, he says, we dug a lot of holes with that dog. afterward." Yeah. Yeah, he that was uh I I like that too because that's such an accepted part of that story, but people don't seem to realize it was just a, 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 it seems to just be another piece of the the fabricated part of that. It's a great barkerism. I'm myth. almost positive. Yeah. I mean, have you read Silverbridge? Uh I have it sitting here and I'm I'm going to get to it before we finish Mothman Legacy, even though Mothman Legacy doesn't really have a lot to do with, with that era. It's really entertaining. I can't um what's his name? Newell Merle Newell um Parker is his last name Parker? Uh Partridge. Partridge, thank you. Having actually heard the audio of him telling it when you made your movie, mm-hmm. when you read Barker's description of it, you're going to have a good time because they are like 90% different. Uh, it's interesting 
that you'd say that. We we interviewed a lady named Susan Shepard who grew up next door to the Partridges. And her version of the story is different from what Merle's is. And she's claiming this is coming from Merle. Like she's she wrote this down like when he told her. And it's still different from what he told Jeff. Oh. So, the, you know, the biggest part of that, we, we get told a lot by people that they're so so happy about that documentary because they can hear the original witnesses like that. Yeah. That credit all has to go to Jeff. Cause like those are Jeff's interviews. Like you put in tons of time, especially Linda Scarberry. That one was really interesting to hear. Yeah. Jeff is Jeff's the reason that movie happened honestly in every, in every way. So I think Jeff deserves a, the lion's share of the, the credit for that particular movie. Yeah, I think that one of the one of the to kind of close out the UFO topics and something you guys kind of touched on a little bit, but I'm assuming you don't want to go down the rabbit hole either is the conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. And I think that what epitomizes my kind of um, amusement with the conspiracy theories on all of it is what Ryan says, where he says everybody says they don't trust the government, then the government comes out and says, well. UFOs, we have spotted some. They're real. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know what they are, but they're real. And then all of a sudden, everybody trusts the government. So it's, it's this like this flip, and that's kind of that's how I feel about a lot of these conspiracy theories. It's like, oh, they're hiding it from us. They're hiding it from us. And then the moment something goes the other way, they go, oh no, we trust them. Right. And that to me goes back to what we were saying earlier about contagion. It's like a contagion of idea. That's why it's so flexible. Yeah. Because it has no roots. Yeah, it's, it is Ryan that says that. He's talking about the, yeah, the idea that, I mean, honestly, like ufology is based around the government, the government not being trustworthy. Right. <laughs> and then you hit 2017 and, and the Navy stuff happens and all of a sudden everyone's losing it. I mean, that's what's kind of ironic about like the disclosure idea. Like, why do we need the government to tell us? Exactly. If there's anything visiting us. If, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Moronic. Well, that's, I mean, you all, and you also have Snowden was on Rogan and mm -hmm. said he actually looked mm -hmm. to see if there was anything about it and they didn't have anything either. And I think when you really look at it from a rational perspective, mm -hmm. a truly rational perspective, you go, we can't figure it out as citizens. What makes us think that the government could figure it out any different? Yeah. Right. And could a conspiracy that big really continue this long? Mm -hmm. You know, like I don't, I don't trust these guys that say that they were government insiders. I don't trust them. I don't yeah. think that they're. I don't think that they're telling the truth. Now, are um, you talking about Luis? Yeah, I'm not sure what I think about him. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know either. I, I I've watched all these interviews with him because I was, you know, like we were making this, and um, and it was just kind of to satisfy my own, my own curiosity. But the guy was a. Uh, he would have worked in disinfo to a to a certain extent, right? Is Greg's got that great line in in episode five though, where he, where he talks about uh, he says something very snidely, like uh, how does he say it? He's like, it's not that the government's like, oh, we don't want you to get about get the truth about UFOs, <laughs> uh, and then he just says, oh shoot, I forget. Something about how it's it's more likely that they're covering up 
top secret projects. Yeah, yeah, something like that. It's just the way you put it is every every UFO sort of fan you talk to, they they've got that mindset that it's all the, the government's trying to keep us from learning about UFOs because I don't know, they they come up with any number of theories as to why. And some of, I mean some of it could be I don't dismiss any of it. Right. But but I also don't go immediately in the direction of like this is a massive global conspiracy, you know. Because the more you look into that, the more unrealistic it becomes. Right. Kind of like what we were saying about explaining things. Mm-hmm. The explanation becomes more stretched out than the possibility of the phenomena. Yeah. Because in no time you're you're going to get into like there's secret government bases that are holding go- alien bodies that are under Washington D.C. and all sorts of. And there's actually, I think uh, Shannon had a a guy on her show recently on Into the Fray where he was talking about uh, submarine caves underneath the whole country. Cool. But I think you know I was thinking about that though. I've been thinking about that. Like, why does everybody jump to the oh the government knows and they're hiding it? Because yeah. it seems like it's it seems like a weird thing, and it's not specifically one political leaning or there's there's no connection between all the people who believe that. Yeah, and I think the only thing I can reason out is there's a sense of safety to that. Well, I was just going to say I think there's. Well, wait. How do you how do you mean? I mean that if if the government doesn't understand it, then people feel like they're hanging out in the wind. You know, oh, okay. Like, oh, there's this shit that we can't explain. Yeah. But the government knows. We don't trust the government, but they knows. They know. So therefore, almost like saying it's handled. See, for me, it's always been like it, 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 there's a certain if. Let me think of how now. Now the, my brain's slipping too because there's a clock chiming outside. Um, <laughs> the. Uh, there, there's like there is a safety in it, but I was coming at that from a different place. Now I can't formulate in my head where where my brain was taking like a head. mental safety. No, it's not even that. It's like um, no, I honestly I can't figure out where I was going with that. <laughs> I hate. When I that just happens. totally. I, I totally blanked. <laughs> it's terrible. I, I think that the concept of two two parts of it that, that probably terrify people. Number one, you touch on it in your abduction episode, or I think it's called the abduction episode. Um, the idea of abduction. I think, I think the title, oops, Jesus. <laughs> microphone just like fell over. Um, that episode's called The Taken. There we go. I knew it wasn't the exact title. I should have just called it Taken and then put like Liam Neeson. <laughs> this episode has a certain set of skills. Yeah. A specific set of skills. Um, but that's terrifying. And then also the idea when you really like try to imagine the idea that we are this tiny little speck in the universe and that it could be full of life mm-hmm. that we're unaware of that's more advanced than us. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. Yeah. So being able to offload some of that onto the government, even though you say you don't trust them, there is a sense of security in that because sure. you're not responsible. You know what I mean? Like I don't have to figure out how I feel about that because even though I don't trust them, they have some sort of plan. Oh, I got it. I remember what I was... See, there's almost there's almost a acknowledgement that goes on in our brain anyway. If you can convince yourself that, that the government knows that UFOs are real, because honestly, it doesn't make a lot of sense for them not to know. Right. So, so if, if these things are 
actually visiting Earth and have been for for decades, then then the government has to have interacted with them at some point, or witnessed it, or or videoed it, or something. You know, so like that, you, you almost have to have that interaction for for the entire subject to even make sense. Right. But I think then the problem becomes people stretch themselves to to make that work. Like it can't just be that the government has seen something. Okay. It can't just be that the government has like the Tic Tac video. It's got to be like, then you go in the directions of, well, the government probably has the Tic Tac video. Uh, and then like t- 20 minutes later, they contacted the pilots of the Tic Tac and they all had a meeting in a secret government facility. And, you know, like then it just goes down. You, you go down these trails that never end. Well, then you have people like David Wilcox yeah. and, and Corey Good who are saying, oh, they're, they're being threatened by, the, you know, they're making this stuff up to make themselves get higher payment for speaking gigs. Sure. Um, Ryan Singer had a really good point in our conversation where he said he, they've basically set the bar where if other researchers say they haven't been connected or contacted by the government. Right. That, they're, that means that their information is not good because it's not good enough for them to connect them or right. I mean, to contact them. So it's hard to trust it all. It, but at the same time, you're right. It, basically, if if the government hasn't seen something that we haven't seen, then what's at risk? Everything, right? Yeah. Because that means that we haven't seen anything. Yeah. And and th- I think that's why a lot of conspiracies... But I think that's why Bigfoot is is entering the realm of conspiracy now, where you've got like a lot of people claim the, their government's covering up Bigfoot bodies and all that kind of stuff. Because it does... It makes a certain amount of sense that if the if Bigfoot exists at some point, like the Forest Service should have run across it, you know, like someone in the Forest Service or something. And they have, but I'm talking about like the the idea that they're they're covering it up. To I'm not shooting that stuff down. I'm just saying there's a route for that that might go beyond rational sort of right thing, or even a basis in in reality, like someone telling a, a an, an encounter, you know, with like a I think I think a lot of that stuff has a has an origin that, that might not be one hundred percent honest. Well, and the hot topic, at least from my what I've seen right now, is portals. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that in some ways there may be some validity to the idea of portals, but the idea of Bigfoot and UFOs, um, well, actually UFOs might not be too much of a stretch, but Bigfoot like jumping portals, I feel like that's more of a stretch to you know, give, give more legs to the theory. Yeah. You, you have to explain why we don't, people feel they have to explain why we don't have a Bigfoot body or why we don't, yeah. why we don't have 100%, you know, beautiful photo, you know, photos or video of a Bigfoot. And so I think you start looking in, into certain areas like that. That's not to say there aren't believable witnesses who've claimed to encounter. Right like a Bigfoot going into a portal. Although I have yet to speak to one. Um, I, I definitely have talked to people who've seen like orbs go into portals that there were believable UFOs, that kind of thing. I haven't talked to a, that's not, again, that's not to say they don't exist. It's just like, I haven't personally met or spoken to them. I know Stan Gordon's investigated that kind of stuff. Well, that's, that's the thing about it too, right? It's there may be these there may be true witnesses that witness these things, but most of the people out there putting out these theories haven't, aren't doing what you did right now and saying, I haven't actually talked to anyone who said that. Yeah. Instead, they're just, 
I, I just went through the struggle recently. Like when, when I'm talking about this stuff and when I'm um, recording in a solo episode, I don't feel good about saying, Hey, I read this from a guy on the internet. Therefore, I'm going to tell you that it's true. Yeah. I don't feel good about that. All I can tell you is I read this and it made me think this. Yeah. And that's, that's what I really love about everything you guys do, especially I think it shows the most in the Mothman episode uh-huh. where it's like, here's the place. Mm-hmm. Here is the people. Here are the people. Here are the stories. Make of it what you will. There, there's something about Mothman too. That the Mothman of Point Pleasant. It, it, I watch it now, and quality wise, we 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 improved dramatically between then and now. Um, and that was coming off of Boggy, and and it was the first time we messed around with recreations and all that kind of stuff. So we were learning on the fly, but. There's something about that movie that really works. Um, and I, I have often tried to figure out what exactly it is. It's a com- I think it's a combination of things. And I think part of it is just that the Mothman story on its own is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. So that alone is really, you know, like a, that, that automatically is a win. But then there's, there's the fact that there are so many witness interviews involved in that. And, that we were able to set the record straight about some stuff. And then there's the artwork that's really good. And, and people really like the animation and that kind of stuff too. So it was a perfect storm. My fate personally, I still believe that the invasion on Chestnut Ridge was, was some solid work I from one. us. I've rewatched it actually, even in the last 20, 25 in, in the last <laughs> couple months. And um, the first 25 minutes of that are some of the tightest, editing in one of our movies so that's why i really think the first like 25 minutes of that is super solid i just rewatched that on sunday actually oh cool what the three things that stand out to me about mothman 2 at least for me from a personal perspective mm-hmm. maybe to help you solve that mystery in some way at least from one person's perspective that stand out are number one being able to see the places mm-hmm. in that particular story adds a lot of context um because it it does it, you go, okay, wait, this is, whoa, we are kind of really out in the middle of this area where everything is open on this, but to actually see it. Yeah. It, and so it adds something to those stories where it's like, if you heard somebody tell you about this giant bird or a giant bird man, it doesn't really make a lot of sense until you see where they were standing when it happened. You go, Okay, in that context, it would be kind of hard to mistake that for something else. Yeah. And then also it, it um the sequence of the guys on the motorcycle or motorcycles, the animated sequence. Yeah. Something about that sequence really drives home the point of that location as well. You know, they turn off the lights on the motorcycle. Yeah. And because of that, they see this thing. On top of the on top uh, of the building, yeah, yeah, and it just the you know the details of the moon and all that, all of that's what it it gives it a personal perspective mm-hmm. that telling the story doesn't always do, yeah. And I think that's why it drives it home too, because you're like, oh yeah, maybe the only reason they get they that that thing appeared is because they turned off the lights on their motorcycle. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that helps at all. Yeah, <laughs> but it does it's just like when. It's hard to look at our stuff. You talk to... That's the one that most consistently comes up 
from from like quote unquote mainstream people. There's that website, Birth Movies Death. Um, I forget the guy's name that runs it, but it's a pretty popular magazine slash website, mainstream. And um, the guy that you know, like I, I always do these searches on Twitter for, for our stuff. I'll look up like Mothman legacy and just see how many people are talking about. And I did it one day for the Mothman at Point Pleasant. And that guy was like, Hey, um, he was talking to someone who had watched one of our other movies. And, um, he said, yeah, they, uh, they made the Mothman at Point Pleasant, which was really solid. Um, but, but don't check out any other other stuff. It's terrible. What is it about that? Like, movie that he was like this is great don't watch any other other stuff at yeah, all. how is that so different than the i don't get that at all yeah it's, it was it was production wise they all have a, a similarity you know like like you said you you try really hard to make them different but yeah there's always an i think they increase too from like you know the production values from from movie to movie sort of goes up oh yeah leaps and bounds every time yeah and we're just naturally figuring out ways to make that happen but yeah, that was a confusing thing to me. But then I also started thinking, well, what did he respond to in Mothman and Point Pleasant that is so far above like the other stuff? I'm not necessarily giving him any credence there because I don't think he's right. But of course, <laughs> but I'm just going to keep doing it anyways, even though yeah. I think he's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, but I was I was curious what he was responding to so so vehemently. I'm surprised that at the very least he wouldn't connect with Terror in the Skies. This might have been before Terror came out. Okay. I was going to say, because there's a vibe there between the two. Obviously, I mean, Mothman shows up in that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's technically in a way a weird sequel. See, Terror in the Skies is, I'm, I think technically it's, it's might be our best movie. It looks great. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really beautiful. The thing that still bothers me about it, there's two things. One, we don't have enough witnesses. We lost, uh, we were supposed to have two more witness interviews. Two witnesses dropped out during the trip. So we would have four witnesses. We lost two. So that that's problematic for me. And then the other thing is that if I had it to do over again, I would shoot every single animated sequence I would have shot traditionally and then comped in a CG creature or come up with a way to do a, you know, sort of um, live action, you know, however we would do that. I just think that movie starts out on such a strong note. I'm really proud of the opening with with the kid in the barn and all that. I wish every recreation in the movie had that look. And if it's I had a very it to, cinematic feel to yeah, it, if I if I had it to do over again, I would do the entire. And that's what we're going to do with Mothman Legacy. The entire thing's going to be shot, you know, traditionally, and then we'll we'll worry about the effects after the fact. I just want to make sure that I can control the look. If we're going for like a very specific sort of look for the entire movie, which we are with Mothman Legacy, I want to be able to control that even in the the effect sequences. All right. Well, I want to ask you one. I want to be conscious of your time. We went 15 minutes over. I wanted to ask you one more question. Mm-hmm. Bell Witch. Mm-hmm. It's, it's your first time really stepping outside of UFOs and cryptids. Yeah. What, 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 why, why Bell Witch? <laughs> um, well, why this is a good that's a good question. So Jason Yudis, who's our sound um sound recordist and one of my oldest friends, and he co-wrote Momo. Um he kind of helped direct us toward the Bell Witch. This was one we had been talking about doing as our first sort of non-cryptid, non-UFO 
project. Um, but a, a lot of it has to do with the fact that Jason as a kid was absolutely terrified of the Bell Witch. <laughs> um, to, to the point where he, his dad convinced him as a child that if they, if he drew a picture of the witch and they burned it, um, that he would no longer be troubled by her. And he wow. did it. And so Jason's convinced this is all some sort of long con by the Bell Witch to get him to Adams and then she's going to kill him. So <laughs> I can't pass up the chance to, to make a movie just to terrify him. <laughs> uh, but I mean, that's, that's honestly a large part of it is, but also, also like as a story, it's really interesting, but I don't feel like there's been any documentaries done that simply tell the story of the bell witch yeah there's that fake one yeah what the heck was it called is it just called the burst the bell witch i think it's just called the bell witch okay um it's it's like a faux documentary but they pass it off as a real one okay yeah i haven't seen that i've seen cursed which was like the a and e show but i mean that's the thing so much of it is either a ghost hunting show or it's just fake and um I just haven't seen someone retell the story, and and then we've we've got some really cool leads for for more modern day stories regarding about which as well. So I'm excited about all that. You know, I might be confusing it with something else. So ignore what I said. Okay, I just looked it up, and I'm like, maybe that was something else. <laughs> it's a Blair Witch. Even one less. It's there's a when once you said ghost hunting, I'm like, oh, you know what? That was a completely different thing. This this happened in a house. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a documentary out there where they go to like this house. This guy says my house is haunted, and this guy and his wife supposedly go there. Okay. It wasn't Bell Witch. Bell Witch is a farm. Yeah. Well, it's a house. I mean, it was a cabin. The, the cabin no longer exists. Yeah. Yeah. This is in the city. What I'm no, thinking of, not confused yeah, it with. It's it's something similar. I'm sure in title name and my brain just mixed them together. Yeah. Um. So. Number one, Kickstarter is done. Um, this episode, I'm going to release this today. So mm-hmm. I'm going to edit, uh, put it out today. Kickstarter crossed its goal, the first goal, which was 55. And the stretch goal is set at 70. The Kickstarter doesn't end for another 23 days. Um, okay. So and still jump in on that. Yeah. And if they back and we can get to the stretch goal, what we are making is on the trail of the Lake Michigan Mothman. Although, I, don't, I shouldn't say this, but we're going to make that regardless. <laughs> but they need money to do it well, people we, yeah yeah back back if you want to well the other thing is that if you back you'll also get a digital copy of the lake michigan mothman thing for free so it's just part of the rewards um but yeah that that's running all the way through march 5th and there's all sorts of cool stuff involved in that including the big reward is the coffee table book there's like a 200 page coffee table book um written by Mark Maskey, who does Monstropolis with me. And um, it's all about basically the creation of small town monsters movies. Um, and he goes movie by movie, walking you through them. And then there's all sorts of artwork and photos and stuff. But yeah, Blu-rays are also a part of this year, uh, which we've never done Blu-rays before. So that's exciting, which I can't wait to see uh, on the trail of UFOs on Blu-ray. I think that'll be really cool. Yeah, that's going to be really cool. And then... Uh... He mentioned Monstropolis as podcast. Go listen to his podcast. It's it's kind of like it's like a behind the scenes mixed with it's yeah. You tend to your focus in, is more on the behind the scenes stuff, and then Mark is more like here's the interesting stuff that I'm reading. 
Yeah, Mark's the one that actually does. Mark Mark actually does research and puts work into <laughs> it, and I watch YouTube videos for five minutes in the morning before we record, <laughs> so I can try to catch up. And uh, where, where can they follow you and and Small Town Monsters? Um, smalltownmonsters.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and uh, I'm on Twitter at Seth Breeds Loves, and I'm on Instagram as well. But I mostly just post pictures of my kid. I'm going to throw all of the links in the description, of course. Um, stick around, and you and I will chat after I, if I, after I do this ending here. Cool. Everybody, thanks for listening. Please, if you want to follow me on Instagram and Twitter, random badassery, all one word. I don't know why I have to keep saying that over and over again. You probably don't need to know that. Join the Patreon. Go over to patreon.com forward slash random badassery, support the show, become part of that. And, uh, to end the episode, did you have like a word of wisdom about the the unreal that you want to share with the audience? When we were making on the trail of UFOs, the, the one of the catchphrases, like one of the messages we were pushing, is like "Stay curious and look to the skies." And it didn't happen. We didn't get it in there, but I fully believe in that message. 